Welcome to the Therapist Thrival Guide. My name is Miranda Barker. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and we have a cool format today. We are talking about perinatal mental health. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Lucas Bellini. Hello. <laughs> I, I wasn't going to forget I wasn't worried you. about it. <laughs> um, we have a cool format today. We're talking about perinatal mental health, and I wanted to bring in two of our phenomenal clinicians around this topic, but they just so happen to not necessarily practice out of Mendota Heights. And so wanted to bring them in. We have like a virtual format. So if you're watching on YouTube, it'll look a little different today. If you're listening on your favorite podcast platform, then it probably will sound just similar. Or Depending on the mic quality of our guests. It's true. I'm sure it'll be great. <laughs> So we're going to jump right into this topic, but beforehand, can we have our guests introduce themselves? Amanda, do you want to go first? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you guys for having me. My name is Amanda Davis-Scott. I am a licensed professional counselor in the state of Virginia. Um, I'm the clinic director at uh, Ellie Mental Health in Chantilly, Virginia, which is about 35 minutes outside of Washington, D.C. It's in the Fairfax County area. I've been in the field uh, for about 12 years now. I'm a clinical supervisor for LPC residency. One of the areas I'm most passionate about uh, is perinatal mental health, um, specifically perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Awesome. Twilight, do you want to go cool. ahead and introduce yourself next? Sure. I'm Twilight Florido Bergad. I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner. I'm licensed with ANCC. Um, Psychiat what is it? <laughs> Psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. And um, I've been trained with PSI on um, perinatal mental health and the management of which. And also, I actually practice out of Mendota Heights. You do practice? Today. What? Yeah. How have I never run into you here? Because when I'm practicing, I'm always in my cave with the door closed and the rain on. Uh, so when I'm here, uh, the door is usually closed. Well, but, I, yeah. we need to get lunch sometime then. I love that you're in the same location. This is awesome. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, sweet. So we talk about perinatal mental health. What exactly, I mean, what exactly is perinatal yeah. mental health? What's what does a that perinatal? Mean? Yeah, Would so like um, as far as perinatal, uh, that really covers the time frame uh, from conception of fetus baby uh, through the first year um, after a birth. So that's what perinatal means. And then when we're looking at mental health, we're talking about everything that covers the anxiety, the depression, the trauma, the OCD, just everything that kind of comes with that new experience and that life transition. Awesome. I feel like we hear a lot about postpartum depression, but we don't hear that term perinatal very often. I'm curious, why do you think that there's this other kind of umbrella term for for pregnancy as well as that first year? Why are they looped together? Primarily, I think it's because there's a lot of changes going on in that period relating to both biologically and physiologically with hormone changes. And then, you know, you have the normal... I guess, expected changes with welcoming a child in terms of sleep deprivation, worrying about somebody else. Um, and so that time period in particular is a pretty vulnerable time for women during pregnancy, 
and that first year adjusting to having a new baby. That's awesome. And so it's May. It's Maternal Mental Health Month. We've already covered some topics such as infertility, miscarriage, infant loss, but we really wanted to kind of dive into an overarching or larger theme of just perinatal mental health and talk a little bit about these mood disorders and how to be supporting clients that are going through this period, and as well as family members that might be going through this period, and even ourselves if we're going through this period, and how we can be taking care of ourselves or pulling in our support network, whether it be professional support like therapists or bringing in um, family members or friends. And so wanted to have you two on to kind of talk about this. Where do we want to start with this? Do we want to jump straight into like what are different mood disorders during this time period? I mean, maybe just generally, you know, like if I were to ask, what's so hard about having a baby? <laughs> what's the big deal? Mm -hmm. Women have mm -hmm. been doing it for centennials. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think maybe a good place to start the conversation is to start about start talking about baby blues and what yeah. that looks like and how that's kind of a normal not pathological thing so we've got about 60 to 80 percent of new mothers experiencing baby blues and that typically it lasts within the first two weeks after delivery where you know the new mom is a little more emotional cries more easily Maybe usually, you know, you, you think about pregnancy and you have all these hormones and within the first 48 hours of delivery, your estrogen and your progesterone drops. And so that can cause these unsettling feelings, mm. but doesn't interfere with the mom's ability to function. And then when you talk about, um, you know, feeling sad or feeling like they're not good mothers, and that persists after that two-week period, then it's time to kind of have a bigger conversation and have an assessment for possibly a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder. Ouch. Yeah, and I think kind of going along with that and what you said, Lucas, is the idea of women have been doing this for, for ages, right? So they should just know how to do it. But yet the issue is we don't talk about it. Yeah. And so there's this stigma that women should just know what's normal and what's not. But in reality, that's part of why this is helpful is to, to normalize what is normal. What are the baby blues? And how do you know when something is a little bit off? Mm -hmm. And if we can see it and identify it early enough, then we can help prevent it from becoming much more impactful. Yeah, so it's on another one of those issues where there's just an overt contradiction between what society thinks to be normal mm -hmm. and what's normal within the actual lived experience. You know, because a societal message around having a baby, it's like, oh my gosh, this is so wonderful. It's so great. It's so beautiful. You you're know, it's gonna, like, enjoy it. You're going to deliver the baby and then just be on cloud nine immediately. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's everything's like, easy. Breastfeeding is easy. <laughs> All of these things. Yes. <laughs> You're going to be glowing and look mm -hmm. beautiful. And, no. <laughs> and motherhood is natural and the baby's born and you're in love with it. And, and then when you don't have that experience, you feel less than, mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of people, when they feel less than, when that's the message that society kind of has for moms, then usually you don't want to talk about it. You well, feel no. embarrassed. Yeah. When you you internalize it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, here's 
but society is saying should be happening. Here's how I should be feeling and behaving, and I'm not. Yep. So I must be the problem. There must be something wrong with me. And, yes. you know, just another demonstration of how people get kind of pushed into isolation mm-hmm. uh, with a number of uh, mental health struggles and strains that at the end of the day are typical responses to something that happened. Mm-hmm. You know, it's I'll, I'll never forget. Uh, people talk a lot about, you know, like when they show you the birth birthing movie in sex ed, you know, or in school, like they think like that's the most horrific thing they've ever seen. Um I'll never forget when I saw a diagram of what happens to a woman's organs <laughs> and like where they all go. Like during pregnancy? Yeah. Yeah. They just all get smushed up. Uh-huh. All like... Smushed up. <laughs> and then they would just kind of fall back down. It's ins- like, it's insane. Like what a woman's body endures uh, <laughs> throughout the actual process of bringing a child into this world. And it's like, yeah, I can, I can appreciate how the adjustment after that is challenging and complex uh, because, you know, what's your understanding of, I I can't speak to this with any clinical precision, uh, but there are ways that a woman's body will change permanently post delivering a baby, you know? And so it's like a significant call to adjust your entire homeostasis of how you function in the world. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, your body goes through so many changes, your hormones go through so many changes, and um, and so you really aren't the same after you give birth. And then you have this super needy human that can't do anything for itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So it's like, I appreciate y'all doing the work you do. Okay, so it's so helpful to hear you both talk about how normal baby blues are. How would you define, I mean, so Twilight, you kind of talked a little bit about how the baby blues would be um it's that first two weeks is that like a clinical timeline of like okay after two weeks then it would be considered postpartum depression or like at what point Mm. i guess would you say is this is normal and this is when it starts to kind of go outside of the realm of normal and we should be concerned it's a great question i think typically it's two to three weeks okay after that period um then i would go into an assessment for um, like postpartum depression or postpartum, like some mood and anxiety disorder. Um, it typically tends to, I think the most common time that that's diagnosed is around two to three months postpartum, um, but can really happen within that whole period. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm kind of lost as to what my point was. No, that makes sense. So it's like, it, so typical <laughs> time frame for being diagnosed with postpartum depression is is even like two to three months after you give birth. I didn't realize that. And I guess in some ways that makes sense because you're going to your your six-week appointment, right? And then they're always going to be doing, the, you know, they're going to give you a PHQ-9 or something, um, hopefully, and talk to you about post postpartum depression. But um, what would be, what would you say would be normal feelings that uh a new parent would be feeling in that two week mark where they don't necessarily need to be concerned, but maybe um, like what are, yeah. Like what are the normal things to feel and why are they felt? Yeah. So I think um, at least in my mindset of, of it, I look at it, there's some things in pregnancy and postpartum that you can really expect problem sleeping. That's going to be a huge adjustment, right? 
changes in appetite. You're adjusting from eating for two to trying to scale back to eat for one, maybe breastfeeding, maybe not. And then this energy shift, right? So you're going to be exhausted all the time. So when I'm looking at depression, I'm really looking at, okay, are there other things that are leading to that sleep disturbance? And it's not just what I would expect. Um, and is it really starting to impair that ability to function and how they're doing with feeding cycles or working if they're having to get right back to work or managing other kids and looking at those daily activities. Are they still showering? Yes, their showering might not be as frequent, but what's the reason for why they're not showering as frequent? Oh my gosh, you made such a good point, Amanda. I'm just like thinking through the diagnostic or like I'm thinking through the PHQ-9 criteria or like the assessment and thinking through how so many of the different questions that you ask someone would be things that would be massive changes for a new parent anyways. And so it would be hard to fill that out and be like, well, I think that some of this is normal. Like, yeah, I'm not um, maybe I am moving more slowly than normal. Maybe I am, you know, like having a sleep disturbance. I'm I'm eating less than normal, these different things. But yeah, it, it makes sense what you're saying about how if it's um, kind of what's leading to that. Is it the normal parent changes or is there something underlying or something more than that? Yeah. You know, when you're talking about sleep, is it because they're not sleeping because they're feeding frequently or are they not sleeping because they're getting up? Mm -hmm. in the middle of the night checking that the baby's breathing mm -hmm. every five yeah. minutes yeah. Mm -hmm. or feeling like they can't cope or not feeling like themselves, you know, because you can be tired, but you can still continue to feel like yourself. But when you start to go into that realm, you no longer feel like yourself. You no longer feel like you're, you have the ability to cope. Mm -hmm. You feel just completely overwhelmed, feel like you're, you know, a lot of guilt typically, like you're not doing enough mm -hmm. or not good enough as a parent so the quality of those kind of thoughts and those symptoms are definitely make a huge difference between like what's normal and what's expected and what's something that probably needs to be addressed so really it's a task of the clinician to dig deeper and see what's behind those assessments what's behind some of those those answers and just to kind of just have deeper conversations than just the, than leaving it at, at that. Absolutely. And there's lots of different, you know, there's multiple different screening tools that people can use as that, that jumping off point to be able to say, okay, you know, this is something we should probably talk. You know, I see you endorsed, you know, that you're, you know, feeling like you're can't control your thoughts or that your thoughts are racing. Let's talk more about why that is and what are they about? So then, I mean, I think that many of us are familiar with postpartum depression, but you were kind of hinting at some of the other mood disorders that you both see when it comes to perinatal mental health. I'm curious, like what, what are some other ones that are out there that maybe we're not as familiar with? There's a high risk of um, OCD during the perinatal period, about probably 1.5 to two times the risk hmm. of like than the general population of OCD onset. Um, there's perinatal anxiety disorders, which OCD is a part of, and then there's postpartum psychosis, which is a little more acute and needs, is considered a medical emergency, mm -hmm. a psychiatric emergency. Yeah, it can get extreme. I've had a couple of clients experience that and it was uh, terrifying. Hmm. 
Mm -hmm. And high risk for just safety issues. Yeah. Right. With um, if the if the thoughts are driven by delusions, and mm -hmm. then you have a high risk of like mortality, mm -hmm. unfortunately. So typically, those symptoms too come on pretty quickly, and it's a matter of like really identifying it. So just I know we're probably not there yet, but like really talking about support and having that support system and people who can help to kind of identify those kinds of symptoms is really important during what, that period. This is this is a perfect jumping in point, though, where what are some of the symptoms of perinatal psychosis or postpartum psychosis? Yeah, so I think um, in my experience, well, when you think of psychosis, it is similar to what you would think of with somebody that has developed a schizophrenia um, schizophrenia spectrum disorder. So you are having positive symptoms such as hearing voices or delusions. Um, I do think that delusions are a little bit more common when it comes to the perinatal experience, um, just because you have a lot more of those concerns around contamination or concerns around um, protecting mm -hmm. the child. And so those thoughts can become really intrusive to the point where they are delusional. Um, in addition to you, you have psychosis negative symptoms, which would be your experience with um, flattening affect or um, reduced affect, some of those um, confusion, disorganization, symptoms like that. Mm. Twilight, other thoughts? Did I miss yeah. any of the big ones? <laughs> I think like earliest signs that are typically missed are like increase in irritability, restlessness, like not sleeping at all. And then you start to see some disorientation, some confusion, some kind of disorganized behavior. Um, and it can be pretty subtle. And so I think it's important to notice that, or it's important to note that it can wax and wane a little bit. And so that's where, you know, the impressions and observ observations of others can be really helpful. Yeah. So it's more of, you know, like when you're going through any adjustment, when we're talking about uh, depression, it's like you can notice when someone's like less of who you know them to be. Mm -hmm. You know, they're much less of themselves. With psychosis, it's it's like seeing a brand new dimension to this person that you never knew existed before. Um, and so that's a good way to kind of detect that. Okay, there, there's there's something happening here that's going beyond uh, postpartum adjustments and postpartum mm -hmm. depression or anxiety. And yeah, it does warrant, you know, immediate uh, medical interventions, which they do have specialized programs for, uh, for postpartum psychosis in particular. And, mm -hmm. you know, because this is when you do hear stories about uh, moms who are having intrusive thoughts about mm -hmm. killing their baby, mm -hmm. you know, or oftentimes it's tied to uh, religious delusions of mm -hmm. like sacrificing my baby on behalf yeah. of something. Um, yeah. And, you know, which, which again, absolutely warrants uh, immediate intervention. And so to know that there are these resources out there. Um, and I think, you know, a good element that we're kind of touching around is this is critical psychoeducation and information for any expecting mother to have. Um, it's also stuff to for partners uh, to familiarize themselves with, you know, because it is, you know, if there is a significant other, another parent in the picture, that's a person who could be uh, a significant resource if they know how to make sense of and understand what's mm -hmm. happening. 
uh, because when there's not that understanding and it starts to result in a relational rupture, you know, or distance, that can just then be an additional element to compound uh, what the new mom is already dealing with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's important to note that partners, even if they don't go through childbirth, they don't go through the same hormonal or like physical changes, they can experience a lot of these different mm-hmm. um, disorders as well. Um, they can experience postpartum anxiety, postpartum yeah. depression. Um, men can experience these things as well. And so, um, and actually they're at a higher likelihood of experiencing these if they, uh, if their partner is struggling mm-hmm. too, or if there was a traumatic birth or, or you know, some, some big expectations that were off or something like that. And so I think that, yeah, it's definitely important information for partners to know, but also important for, um, clinicians to be watching for their, for their clients that they're working with or their family members or people who are in their, their lives that are, that are welcoming a new child into their family. And even, I'm going to put a plug in here too, where post-adoption depression is a thing as well. I mean, Karen Foley wrote an excellent book on post, post-adoption blues that I would highly recommend for any any parents that are going through the adoption process or step-parent adoption, anything like that, because it is a very real thing that, that adoptive parents don't talk about. And it's very even more stigmatized because you're, you have a fear that the child's going to be taken away from you. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's something that's definitely pervasive, like something that a lot of people experience. And so I'm glad we're having this discussion to talk about, like, these are the symptoms. This is what to watch out for. I'm hoping, I'm wondering if you two can speak on, too, what does treatment look like for clients that are experiencing um, different perinatal mental health disorders? If Sorry, I don't mean to, like, like, not answer that question, yeah. but I wanted to touch on something that Dr. Vellini was talking uh-huh. about, which I think is really important for clinicians and support persons to, to have, like to think about. So you talked about intrusive thoughts and scary thoughts. And I think that it's very true, especially in psychosis, but also in other anxiety and OCD mm-hmm. disorders. And a lot of the time, because of the scary nature of the thoughts, women will not come forward with them because of fear that they're going to be judged by these thoughts. And I think- Or they'll take my kid away from me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think as clinicians, if you're working with people in this population, you have to be comfortable asking those questions and not waiting for the client to talk about it because you have to ask about like, are there Mm -hmm. scary thoughts and to normalize it, that it is, it happens a lot to a lot of women. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to do something about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it most of the time, actually, it's a very distressing thought. And you would go out of your way to protect your child from whatever your thought may be. And I think that is a very kind of good distinction between postpartum psychosis and like an OCD uh, type of thought, intrusive thought, where in psychosis, those thoughts can be more dangerous because it's driven by delusion and it might not elicit fear in the client. It might be that, well, God wants me to sacrifice Mm. my baby. And so I will, because it's driven by that delusion. Whereas if you have an intrusive thought of like, you know, dropping the baby or hurting the baby in some way, and it distresses you so much that you won't go down the stairs because you Mm. might drop the baby. Mm -hmm. Like it's a very, you know, it's a very different kind of 
path for those two things. Yeah. Um, and I, so I, I think, just really want to talk about that. So yeah, I was going to say, I also agree, like, that's a big part in that differential diagnosis mm. of, of the intrusive thoughts or of the thoughts that they're experiencing is whether it's ego dystonic, um, mm. whereas with the psychosis, it would it would not be. Um, but also that gets to, as a therapist, my first intervention is always kind of talking about the scary thoughts and normalizing that people have scary thoughts, especially during this period of time, but it's not, doesn't mean the same thing as actually taking action on those thoughts. Um, and so usually when I'm doing any type of intervention with this population, it's starting with normalizing, helping give that education upfront about what is normal and what can be expected. And then also just being that space for them to feel like they can speak about it and not get shame or judgment or feel like they're just kind of feeling all these negative thoughts that they have themselves to be able to talk to somebody about what what's actually going on. Yeah. And so you two are specialists uh, in with, with these demographics. And so when it comes to the level of treatment and direct intervention, kind of post the fact, you know, it's like they're coming in with these struggles. They're at a point of postpartum depression, you know, any of the uh, number of the uh, other categories we've talked about, you know, but to keep in mind that this is this is general knowledge for outpatient therapists having period, you Mm -hmm. know, like if you're working with somebody who's pregnant, start having these conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're working with somebody who just, you know, is coming to their first appointment after delivering, have these conversations. And so there is, you know, I think a general, a general outpatient therapist can play a significant part in uh, preventative care, you know, and kind of giving knowledge and resources. And so like, what, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. You know, what are some things that we can just be communicating to people and with the intention to kind of get ahead of a lot of what happens after the fact? That's a great question. I would actually go with having these conversations in all reproductive age women mm-hmm. because a lot of pregnancies are unplanned. Mm. And so waiting, I feel like waiting until the pregnancy is there, um, can be a little bit of a barrier. But if you're having these conversations way ahead, talking about what can happen, how common these things are, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, what you can do to protect yourself, protect your sleep, utilize your resources and support around you so that you don't run into the problem of expecting too much out of yourself Mm. or extending yourself too thin. Um, And so I really think, especially in those who already have had episodes of depression or who struggle with anxiety, um, it can be a particularly vulnerable time um, during the perinatal period. So having those conversations with everyone, even if they don't think they're going to have a baby mm-hmm. because of how they're a lot of the time unplanned. Or at the very least, they will be in relationship to people who do have babies. Mm-hmm. You know, just in general, the more people who have this basic knowledge, uh, the more supported you know, people who are affected by it will be. Completely agree. So we talked a little bit about those first conversations, normalizing it and say, and asking the questions um, before the client comes to you with, with kind of, here's what I'm struggling with. What, what would be your next step if they're saying like, yeah, I am experiencing some of these things. It's past the two week mark. It's beyond the baby blues. What does, does treatment of postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety really just look like typical treatment of depression anxiety? How would you go about treating a client that was experiencing this? Or even 
you know, typical OCD, how it would, how it might look different or similar? I think for me, um, as a therapist, I would focus on linking and getting that support network established and um, Postpartum Support International PSI has some great support groups that I generally refer everybody to, even if they're not interested, I always say, you know, look, this is something that might be helpful down the road for you to consider. Um, And then I also rely pretty heavily on the CBT kind of aspect of things. So really building in some mindfulness, especially for those anxiety disorders, try to help them regulate their breathing because that's going to be really helpful during pregnancy as well um, and during labor. Um, And then looking at some of that cognitive restructuring, um, identifying any automatic thoughts and developing those alternative perspectives um, and working through some of the emotions that are are very common for um, women in the perinatal period, those shame, guilt, um, I'm not good enough kind of thoughts that show up. And for me, from the medication management kind of perspective, I think a lot of it is going to be education, definitely leaning into social support. I think any support group you can think of, PSI has it available. And if they don't, they will get something on there. Um, and like having having their support established, talking about risks of medication management versus risk of untreated or undertreated anxiety or depression. Mm. Because I think a big misconception is that medication, because it's an external like chemical thing that you take in, that it's automatically worse to take something extra, but nobody, or at least it's not very common to talk about the risks of untreated depression, Mm -hmm. untreated anxiety during pregnancy Mm -hmm. and the postpartum period impacting your relationships, your ability to bond with your child or um, build secure attachment or even take care of yourself if you're not eating um, or if you're so depressed that you are engaging in more things that are dangerous for pregnancy, like drinking or smoking. Um, And so really talking about risks and benefits and also new information that we have that is quite reassuring about a lot of different medications. Um, in terms of the risk of teratogenicity and the risk of like behavioral teratogenicity. Wait a second, wait a a second. What does that mean? What does that mean? I don't know what that means. (laughs) Which teratogenicity? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, where it can interfere with the development um, of the fetus and Mm. produce organ malfunctions Mm. or malformations. Yeah. Um, And so... Like, for example, you know, um, uh, neural tube defects, for Mm -hmm. example. Yeah. Or in some cases, there's a lot of, I think, conversation about or or beliefs about medications causing attention issues and cognitive issues in children later down the line. And so it's like the like one of the challenges is that our knowledge about it is incomplete. But what we do know is that there are a lot of reassuring data um, for medications during this time period. See, this is exactly what I was hoping you were going to go into, Twilight. This is so helpful. And just exactly what you were saying about how, like, there are medications that you can take while you're pregnant. And so much of the conversation is having having those conversations with your prescriber about the risks and benefits. Because 
Sure. There's there are some things we still don't know about medication use during pregnancy. However, we do know that untreated depression has can be harmful as well. And so I I'm so glad you brought that up. That's so helpful. Yeah, no, it's it's and I mean, I say this too as a mom. I have two children and I you know, just the expectation of parenthood is just not the same as reality. <laughs> um, and there are just a lot of things that people don't talk about. And it, you know, people just white knuckle through because of the belief that this is just what all the moms have done for thousands and thousands of years. And so if everyone can do it, I should be able to do it. And it's, I think, personally, a very dangerous way of thinking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then you don't get the help that you need. Yeah. I was... I feel like going off of that, there's this, there's just this view of like, you should be happy during your pregnancy. Like you should be glowing. You should be happy. Why are you depressed? Why are you anxious? You know, and like, and this, this false misconception, like it's all false, right? Um, even I have a, I have a good friend who's pregnant and has, um, she is 14 weeks along and has been experiencing morning sickness every single day, really all day sickness since she was six weeks. And so she has, at first she was like, I don't feel like I can complain. I feel like people are like, you should be happy. You should be, you know, um, but then she finally got to a point recently where she was like, no, I'm allowed to say this is hard. Yeah. <laughs> I'm allowed to say that this sucks. Like, yes, I'm happy I'm pregnant, but like, this is hard and you're allowed to to have Multiple the spectrum feelings. of feelings during your pregnancy exactly yes. exactly um, there's a reason why like that parenting handbook that tells you everything that you're supposed to ever know about parenting has never been written it's <laughs> because each parent is too busy to actually write it and because mm. there's no clear way to do it mm -hmm. people have you know these assumptions that everybody's supposed to just be able to, to do it. And the reality is it's not easy. It's, it's definitely hard. And it's one of those things that you need that support group to be able to kind of thrive in, in order to do it. Yeah. And another part of that reality is we're living in, you know, kind of the first era or generation, maybe this is a second generation of parents who do actually have access to really, 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 really good books. Mm. You know, it's like, we've learned a lot. Um, especially within the realm of human development, attachment, you know, it's like there is far more out there now that can give us a framework of at least how to think about parenting, um, you know, that, that can help to just have a better grip on what you're doing as a parent, you know, and so even going into delivering a child, um, starting to develop a parenting philosophy that's grounded in reality, that's informed, you know, that's something that I've worked on with a lot of uh, couples that's just helped them at least, you know, step into that phase of adjustment with some degree of, you know, resources and knowledge that they can latch on to. Mm -hmm. And again, to paint a clear picture of what uh, post-delivery looks like for a family system, which includes a lot of positive, wonderful, beautiful things, but you can't let those, you know, kind of create an illusion that the really, really, really hard things don't exist too, mm -hmm. and that they're going to exist at the same time, and that's okay. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> I'm so glad that you brought up Postpartum Support International. Such a good organization. We'll have link to their information in the description because I just I can't speak highly enough about what a good organization that is. Curious if you two have other suggestions for building like a local support network or building bringing in family and friends like if you are either a person who is going through this period of their life or if you're speaking to clients and you're saying hey let's bring in more people and try to build up your support network so i know that there are a lot of different therapists out there um, if they do have the specialty in perinatal um, care then a lot of times they will also offer family support groups or they will offer some education so one of the things that i do in my practice is if i have somebody that is experiencing postpartum depression i will ask them, you know, is this something that would be helpful for us to have a family member come in for a bit and let's do some education with the family. Let's talk about how they can support you in this and kind of make it that collaborative approach. Mm. Um, I know that there are a lot of virtual groups available to kind of help support. So if you're not getting what you need from your therapist, you can get some extra. A lot of times that's through PSI and some of the links that they can offer. And typically when I do um, when I, with patients that I'm caring for before delivery or at some point during the pregnancy, we'll have a visit with a support member, some person that they're going to really rely on and lean on during this period and talk about, you know, supporting with sleep and talk about the changes that might happen that might alert them to be like, well, we should talk to somebody or talk about planning. Really, I think a lot of it is planning before it comes and like accepting help a mm. lot of us have a hard time especially in this country a lot of us have a hard time of like accepting help or asking for help but it's really it really takes a village and so I think encouraging people and reminding everybody that there's you know different seasons in life and it's cyclical and we've got a season where we're the ones giving and there's a season where we're on the receiving end and in this time of their life in that period it is a receiving time and so leaning into asking for help asking or knowing what you need help with and organizing it in that way and having boundaries you know um, can be really important um, and then like Amanda said groups, a lot of people appreciate the virtual groups because it's a lot easier to manage. Mm -hmm. But also there are perinatal programs in our area. There's um, the Red Leaf Center for, I believe it's Family Healing through HEMC. Um, there's perinatal programs through Prairie Care, through um, the Nystrom Mother Baby program. Like intensive so outpatient are, programs? Yeah, and sure. things about patient programs that are available for those who might need a little more than just, you know, virtual programs. Mm -hmm. And I think also important to mention, um, PSI does have the National Psychiatric Consult Line, which is really important for people to be aware of, um, that if you are a provider, that you can rely on that consult line to help guide you in, um, in treatment. Oh, wow. I've never heard of this. So, so a provider can just call and ask questions about a client that they're working with? They will match you. So you provide the information and they will match you with somebody within a given amount of time. It's not instantaneous, but they'll match you with a provider that does consults all over the country. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's great. 
There's also actually, speaking of resources for clinicians, there's also um, the virtual round through the Mass, Mass General Hospital. Um, and they do that on Wednesdays and they can answer questions there on the spot. And you have like a lot of people doing the same thing and serving the same population. And it's a really great, um, great place to kind of learn new research that are coming up, ongoing research, and also like how to manage these things. Cause it can be, it can be fairly complicated and not a lot of like information out there. So it's a great, great place to get some, um, information from really experienced clinicians. Oh, wow. You'll have to send me that information so I can include it in the description as well, because that sounds really helpful. What other resources or books or, yeah, what other resources would you guys include for clinicians that are working with this population that might be helpful? So I think for clinicians and for um clients. One of the two books that I really rely heavily on um, for dads, it's Finding Time for Fatherhood by Bruce Linton. That's one that's really been great. Um, And then for um, other individuals um, and for practitioners, I always encourage them to read Good Moms Have Scary Thoughts by Karen Kleiman. I have never heard of either of these books. This is great. Yes, the Good Moms, definitely. And then there's also... Um, oh my gosh, I can't think of it. I think I wrote it down somewhere, but there's a couple of like social media places that have really great information and like talk about their experience with, um, trauma and depression following pregnancy or pregnancy loss. Mm -hmm. That is really helpful to kind of get that perspective and understand that perspective. I will have to find it. I think I have it in my bag somewhere. Yeah, that's perfect. I'll, I'll include those in the description too. I, I think social media has opened up so much in terms of normalizing, um, you know, people, people are allowed to have these platforms where they can share their stories. They can share their experiences with it, with, with this. And it, it is so normalizing and helpful for others that might be going through something similar or just with educating the general public about how, how normal some of these and how, yeah, I think this is, those are great ideas. Those are great resources. And that's a big step for a lot of parents or a lot of um, individuals that go through postpartum depression is like actually, you know, having that chance to talk to somebody about it. And then you're going to get that reciprocal. Oh my gosh, I went through something very mm-hmm. similar, you know, and I didn't know that there was all these resources here. It's same thing happens when there's birth trauma or um, traumatic loss, you know, that people start talking about it. And then you realize a lot more people have gone through it than what you would actually expect because we don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we can all do, uh, you know, our, best advice for expecting Mm. parents before delivery as it relates to mental health yeah and the adjustment (laughs) and the blues and you know just more of the preventative yeah stuff so i think my best advice would be to get with somebody whether it's an ob a doula a midwife um, perinatal practitioner start talking about what your plan is going to be start talking about what you can expect and what what to do when things come up. Um, that would be my, my advice to start with. Like your birth plan yeah. or your plan for like if you are struggling with your mental health or something else? 
both (laughs) kind of starting to talk about it and say like what are your worries about us having bringing a child into this world like Mm -hmm. are you worried about anything Hmm. do I need to be concerned that you're not worried (laughs) um you know and just kind of having that discussion about okay this might be hard so how are we going to manage it how are we going to communicate between the two of us when we are both sleep deprived Mm -hmm. or you know how am I going to do this without having family around if if you don't have family that live close by or that aren't going to come visit you know making those plans in place and and talking about the plans so that when things do come up you already know what to expect yeah and as i would second that wholeheartedly and talk about i think sleep is just very important to talk about how do you get sleep when you're waking up every two hours Mm -hmm. to feed a baby it's just something that needs to be I think talked about in a concrete way to come up with a concrete plan of like, do you have a separate space that you can sleep where the baby is not? Can you keep it dark? Can you have white noise or something like that? Talk about getting adequate nutrition, making sure, you know, like preparing spaces where you're, for example, if that's where you're going to be nursing majority of the time, having some snacks and drinks available, protein rich foods, um again with medications i think talking about it way in advance is a great idea if it's possible to get stabilized before the pregnancy and like plan it that way Mm. um and definitely in talking about medications too making sure that the education is there to continue the medications generally very few medications have to be stopped during pregnancy Um, overall, if you're doing well on it, you know, it's a conversation to be had. I think the instinct is to just discontinue medications altogether, which just increases risk. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think having that conversation, those conversations way ahead, um, and also talking about risks, risk factors and, oh my gosh, I could talk forever about this. (laughs) You know, like Mm -hmm. risk factors, there's a lot of things that we don't consider to be a risk factor for it. But, you know, a recent move, institutional racism, Mm -hmm. um, climate stressors, like there's just a lot going on. Temperament of the baby. What are you going to do if you have a colicky baby that won't stop crying? Um, And so just setting expectations and like kind of having, like Amanda said, kind of having a plan of, how do you address that? How do you even identify that that's being a prob- becoming a problem? And who do you talk to about it? I would say as I primarily work with couples, um, you know, family therapist, also existential therapist, I would say are kind of my two primary frameworks. And if you're invested in optimizing the health of family systems, there's no better opportunity for that than to be able to work with expecting parents especially if it's their first child, you know? And so the times that I've had that opportunity, that's just what I focus on. You know, it's like, I don't care what brought them into couples work or what we have been working on. If, you know, you get pregnant or, you know, that comes to light, it's like, all right, do, do would you all be interested in doing what we can to optimize the development of this human that you're about to bring into the world? And some of the points I like to hit right off the bat, I would say first and foremost, I tell them, you have to prepare to adapt your orientation to your personal freedom because hmm. that's a big one. You know, and when it comes to freedom, there's such a significant difference between us feeling like 
something external is infringing upon our freedom to make our own choices of what we want to do and we don't like that it's infringing on it and choosing to give up our freedom on behalf of something meaningful and purposeful. You know, so I kind of break that down that there we identify the aspects of their life that are going to be disrupted as an account of now being a parent responsible for raising a young human. Um, you know, I, I tell them when it comes to late night feedings or diaper changes, you will absolutely have the darkest thoughts hmm. of your life. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll name a few of the ones that I had, you know, during my uh, late night uh, rotations with the babies, you know, as they needed tending to and, and care to. And, you know, it's like, that's normal. It's like, be prepared for it. Like they will be dark. And the thoughts that you're thinking that you might have right now, they're going to be much worse than that. Um, cause you need to be in that moment. And so it's normal to have them. It's not normal to act on them, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's like, th- th- those are two distinctions there. Um, you know, and then ultimately, I kind of give them the mantra of going back to the freedom piece. You know, it's like when you do find yourself in those moments when you're really strained and you're feeling like this baby has disrupted so many aspects of life that you were so familiar with and accustomed to. It's like you just need to remind yourself that it's like I, I am sacrificing sleep on behalf of this child that I, that I love. You know, and it's like the more I would say that to myself in those moments, uh, the much more tolerable they became. Mm-hmm. You know, and so what my whole approach to setting expectations for people is to go as deep into the brutality as possible. Um, Because if we don't do that, we're just wasting our time. Um, But there's a lot we can do, you know, and as uh, mental health providers and therapists, you know, not just with the clients we work, but we work with directly, uh, but people in our lives, you know, our engagements with the world, uh, when we know people who had had, you know, just delivered, you know, or as a significant other, you know, or new parent, uh, not even a new parent. They have another child. Uh, it's like my friend just told me he's having his third kid. And so now I need to give him the talk of the power differential, you know, <laughs> and how everything's going to change now um, and to get him ready for that. And so, you know, we, <laughs> the more we talk about this stuff out loud, uh, the more permission people get to mm-hmm. ask questions and talk about it out loud. And as mental health professionals, we have social responsibility to keep doing that. So I appreciate you all being here today and addressing this. Mm-hmm. Very important topic. Oh, the last thing I love to tell Wait parents, too. I have tips. I oh, say, I know, but oh, I want to. this wanted, is on I, yours. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Um, I th- I've mentioned this in other recordings, but the uh, the most the most beautiful statistic in all of uh, parenting literature is, again, if you want your child to have a secure attachment, which is the goal, you only need to have the optimal parenting response three out of ten times which means you could be a suboptimal <laughs> slash shitty parent 70% of the time. Mm-hmm. And there's so long as you're on point 30% of the time, it's like good chance your kiddo's going to have a secure attachment. But then I say strive for seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, give yourself a, some cushion and some room for air. I love that. Yeah, I think about that sometime. Mm-hmm. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old at home, and, yeah. you know, just because I'm a therapist doesn't mean I'm a perfect parent. <laughs> Um, okay. I feel like I have so many thoughts on this and they could go all over the place. And so I'll try to keep this coherent. Um, as someone who has not given birth to a child, but has, um, become a parent through adoption, I think that one of the things I think about a lot is, um, and that I hear from clients who have 
given birth is, you know, I didn't, I didn't bond with my child right away. And just even thinking about how that's present in a lot of adoptions as well. And, and I, when I used to be an adoption social worker, I would hear parents talk about, you know, like, I feel like I'm babysitting for the first, you know, few months or few first few weeks. And, um, I, and, and just kind of that bonding is not something that happens instantaneously for everyone. And that that's true of biological parents. That's true of adoptive parents and, and how just giving yourself the space and the permission to take a little bit of time to bond is, is important. And just to realize that this is something that often takes time and how you didn't fall in love with your partner as soon as you met them and how sometimes it it takes a little bit of time to get used to this new routine and and this new person that you suddenly have to get to know and understand and and so even just giving yourself permission for some of those things um, is so crucial and I think um, some of the other thoughts that I've had just through this conversation too is um I love that we just talk so much about support and how how crucial that is during this time and and leaning on people in your life, asking, getting used to asking for help. Um, and I think have I love that we're having these conversations about even, you know, talking about this before the baby comes, before you get into this place. And I just think this is this is helpful even from I'm thinking about some of my clients who aren't currently pregnant, but like their sister is pregnant or something and even just you know talking to them about how can we be watching out for symptoms how can we be supporting them as well and um I think this is this has just been such a good episode of of good information um any other last thoughts before we kind of wrap up I think definitely there's a lot of room if you are looking to kind of specialize in this area, there's a lot of great room for identity work. So if that's a passion of yours as a therapist, definitely there's so much work to be had around how do you shift your identity from being one of the self to being a mom and still have that sense of self um, or to be a a dad and have that sense of self. And how do you nurture that relationship? um, As you were mentioning about couples work, it's all really there's so many different facets to perinatal work that is so intriguing. So mm-hmm. definitely I encourage anybody that's interested to, to go ahead and start doing your research. There's always a need for more perinatal specialists out there. Yeah, I agree. And I think as to um, your point, Miranda, I think, you know, not everybody is going to need medication. Not everybody is going to need therapy, but social support mm-hmm. is the one essential, I think, that everybody could use um, and needs, actually, during that time. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, there's the asking for help and also managing yourself so that you are able to do it without stressing out about it. Um, because a lot of people, as you will probably know or already know, are happy to help, but they don't know what to do to help. Mm-hmm. And so having, you know, having those things that you do every day, just kind of listing them out, somebody comes and says, what can I do? My dishes, there's a list on the fridge that of things that need to be done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people are happy to help. It's just a matter of like harnessing that energy and putting it towards something that's not going to cause additional stress. Mm-hmm. Well, and letting go of some of the expectations too. You don't need to have a perfectly clean house when your mother-in-law comes over to hold the baby. <laughs> things like this yeah yes yes exactly (laughs) i think my final thought too would be um 
if everything we talked about today, if you ever find yourself with a client that likes having sex but is really, really bad at using contraception, have all of these conversations, you know, about the <laughs> realities of, of childbirth and child rearing, you know, because it is, it is, when it comes to what can be prevented, um, and sure earlier when Twilight out. said a lot of pregnancies are unplanned, <laughs> but all in all, all around, uh, be responsible. Uh, and I mean that in a number of ways, but yeah, this was great. This is really helpful stuff. Awesome. Thank you both so much for joining. This has been great. The Therapist Thrival Guide is one of many creative productions from Ellie Mental Health. Ellie is an outpatient mental health clinic that began in St. Paul, Minnesota, and has continued to expand to over 20 clinics in Minnesota and a growing number of franchisees across the country. We'll be opening over 500 locations in communities nationwide in the near future.